Well, as Daryl just reminded us in, in the offering lead-up, there's a science behind giving. And the science behind happiness has developed in recent years. There's this joy and euphoria that we experience when we're happy, and it's a result of this release of hormones in our brain. And some have called this the happiness trifecta, the hormones of dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin that are all released and that contribute to our sensation of happiness. Dopamine is what uh, motivates us towards our goals. And serotonin is, that, is what happens when we begin to feel valued and important. And oxytocin is the hormone that's released to form those bonds of intimacy and trust. And we feel particularly happy when all three of these things are firing at the same time in our brain. When these hormones are released, they have an effect of boosting our mood, releasing endorphins that make us feel good. But also, they reduce the effects of cortisol, which is the hormone released when we're anxious or when we're stressed out. So you may be thinking, okay, how do I get me more of a hit of these, this happiness trifecta? You know, our brains light up with these hormones when we do things like eat a really good meal, have sex, exercise, or take drugs. But there is another way of experiencing this feeling of full life and joy. And it's through this act of giving. When a person gives to another, scientists have found that these hormones are released in the brain simultaneously. In a very tangible way, when we give, our bodies actually benefit from it just as much as the person that we're giving to. Science is telling us that li giving literally helps us to be happier. We feel more alive. Our stress levels reduce. We, when we give, we put ourselves in the driver's seat of our happiness rather than having to rely on someone else or something else to achieve that effect. The science behind happiness, though, seems to confirm what is already revealed in Scripture when Jesus said something similarly many, many years ago in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. He says, when you give, it will be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. We often think about that merely in financial terms, but giving is something we can do with all of our lives. Through our Thrive series, we've been looking at how we can live thriving lives in this world, but also live thriving lives for the world that we live in. And in this final message of the series, we're going to look at how thriving isn't so much about protecting what we already have or accumulating uh, something outside of ourselves and accumulating more in order to be happy. In order to thrive, God invites us to give. In today's message, we're going to look at three aspects of giving. The opportunity, the challenge, and the certainty. The opportunity that we have to give, the challenges that we have in giving, and the certainty we have in our giving. Now, we're a few chapters further into Acts than the previous week. Paul has now traveled into, uh, to Jerusalem with an offering, and you'll see the map here. They're making their way towards Rome because Jew the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Paul. And so he claims Roman citizenship to plead his case before Caesar in Rome. Now he and along with a group of other prisoners are being taken by prison guards to Rome via a grain ship that has been chartered from Lycia. So they've made their way up towards what is now Turkey, and they've found a ship, and they're making their way towards Rome. But it's late in the season, 
and it's dangerous to sail at this time, and sailing is rough. They're forced to stop in Fairhaven on the island of Crete, just in the middle of this uh, map here. But rather than winter in the harbor like many ships would, the captain makes a risky move. He's hoping to get his final payday. You ever watch those, like, what, ice truckers shows? You know, they're always trying to rush for the final load before the ice breaks. That's kind of like what's happening here with the ship. The captain wants to make the final haul so he can get paid before winter. There's a temporarily, temporary southerly wind that opens up, and he sees a break. He says, we're going for it. But it's a mistake. They start sailing towards Rome, but they encounter a hurricane, and they're at the mercy of wind and waves and drift towards, throughout the ocean towards Cauda. And as we enter the text that we read now, we heard read, we see the predicament that they find themselves in. In Acts 27, we realize that Paul is not in the driver's seat of the situation. He's a prisoner. He's on a ship that's out of control. In the world that says, take control of your destiny, take control of your happiness, this situation seems really far from that. Now, if you've been around the Christian faith for a while, you've likely heard of another story of another missionary who gets on a boat and gets stuck in a storm. His name was Jonah. He was a prophet commissioned by God also to be a missionary. But Jonah is unhappy with that situation. He doesn't want to do what God tells him to do. And when he's called upon in the middle of the storm, he's a grump about it. He whines about the whole situation. But here Paul reacts differently. He managed, manages to thrive in a less than ideal situation. And not only does he thrive, he helps others to thrive at the same time by giving of himself. He finds an opportunity to give. In verse 21, he gives advice. In fact, he's already given this advice earlier in verse 10, when they first set sail from Crete. You see, Paul was a craftsman, if you remember. He built tents and made leather goods, but he, and he was also a missionary. But he was also quite a seasoned traveler by this point. In fact, we're told in his earlier letter to the Corinthians, that he has been shipwrecked three times already. Now, if I was a captain and I found out this guy has already been shipwrecked three times, I probably would have kicked him off the boat. He's bad juju, right? But he advises them to stay together. But more than advice, he provides encouragement. In verse 22 and verse 25, he tells them to keep your courage because not one of you will be lost, as Kurt reminded us in the reading of those passages in our worship and song. Many of us have worked at some point on group projects or teams at school or at work, right? And perhaps even at church, we're serving in a team or a ministry or a commission. And sometimes our advice or our counsel is not heeded. And so when the group finds itself in the same situation, it's understandable. We might want to withdraw. It's like, I'm not going to say anything because they didn't listen last time. Just keep my head down low. It's on, it's on them. Or maybe I'll just be polite and say, I told you so. Or I won't say, I, won't, I will be polite and I won't say, I told you so. But I'm sure not sticking my neck out again. But Paul here does, doesn't do that. He steps out again. He could have responded like Jonah, like a grump, because they already didn't listen to him. He's been burned already. He has no position or authority It's not in his pay grade. He's a prisoner. But he puts himself out there. He gives out of this deep place of trust and faith. 
And he gives so that all might survive. He gives advice again and again and again to keep them together, to keep them safe. Verse 30, he says, stay together, don't run away. Verse 26, run the ship aground. Verse 34, take care of yourselves and eat some food. And ultimately, he leads the crew in giving thanks to God for food. In verse 35, he says, he took some bread, he gave thanks to God in front of them all, and he broke and began to eat. Paul found opportunities to give, even in circumstances that were not ideal for his own well-being. As we approach Thanksgiving, we're reminded of the roots of this tradition going back to the first European settlers on this continent through images like these, which show pilgrims giving thanks to God for the new land over a feast of pumpkins and turkey and corn and squash that they seem to be benevolently handing to the Indians on the land. But images like these aren't likely the whole picture. Most European arrivals weren't farmers. These foods that they're shown here aren't our standard American Indian diet. And they shared these with their new pale-faced arrivals. American Indians, who had a much, uh, much less individualistic approach to material goods, saw their land as something to give and to share with others. So the indigenous people gave advice about how to farm and what kind of foods to eat that helped these new arrivals thrive on their land. These new Europeans who took over uh, their, their towns and took over land that had already been cleared by the Indians. And in return, the colonists gave something back to the Indians. They gave them a new name. They called them savages, counted them as less than human. They called them, and they also gave them their diseases, which wiped out like 80 to 90% of the indigenous population in just a few years. See, the sharing wasn't always just one way. And the relationships weren't always peaceful and idyllic like in these paintings. But despite the way that they were treated, the American Indians still found ways to give and to share what they had. And so as we gather with friends and family over this next week, recognize that the opportunities that we enjoy right now are not just because of the generosity of our parents or of our grandparents and of their grandparents, but it's also because of the generosity of those who first lived on the land that we now gather upon. Because of those before us gave, we too have opportunities to give as well. You know, as we look at Paul, we find that this kind of giving is really countercultural. Giving can often be hard. There's a challenge to giving. Paul here gives leadership in a place where he has no authority. His giving, though, is not out of self-righteous indignation. It's like, I told you so. You better listen to me this time. But it comes out of a deep place of trust in God. We don't see the challenge for Paul to give, though. It's just in Paul's life. We saw it's a challenge for others on the ship as well. In verse 30, the sailors struggle with it too. You see, they, they see that the ship is probably going to go down. And they want to live. And so they feign lowering anchors when really they want, what they want to do is get in the boat and leave everyone else. If they stay, they're going to have to give up control. Some attempt to save themselves on their terms, but Paul tells them that they will lose their lives unless they stay together. It's not just the sailors, though. It's the soldiers, too. In verse 42, the soldiers, were told, are planned to kill the prisoners to prevent them all from swimming away and escaping. Now, this is after 14 days of floating around in a hurricane. Morning breaks. They see land. And they run their ship aground. Everything is lost. 
the ship, the cargo that they've already tossed, and the soldiers are now about to lose control of the prisoners that they've been entrusted to take care of and travel to Rome. You see, for soldiers, everything was on the line for them because if any prisoner escapes, they pay for it with their lives. The soldiers would be condemned to die if any one of those prisoners escaped. But they had to give up their own plans to survive in this case. See, there's these challenges of giving. We often have to sacrifice our autonomy and control for the sake of others. Where we find ourselves in situations where we're not in the driver's seat or not in control, it's understandable that we just sit back. The sailors and the soldiers are tempted to do what they can to survive the ordeal. They want to take matters into their own hands. They want to cut losses and forge out on their own. But Paul's example here demonstrates that even unplanned circumstances can be opportunities to give in ways that help others thrive, not just for ourselves to survive. You know, much of what we are able to do here as a faith community is because of your faithful giving of time and of resources. You know, I looked at some stats. We gather, you know, 100 to 130 people, including children on a Sunday. But we draw from a list of 66 volunteers that have signed up for things that help us do what we can do every Sunday morning. That's just on Sunday morning. Behind the scenes, there's a group of people that are, uh, and leaders that are serving to organize and plan and to strategize. We have these committees and informal ones and official commissions. And in a couple weeks, we're going to be affirming some deacons and elders for the upcoming calendar year that help bring leadership and help us move forward in the mission that God has called us to, to be a thriving community that helps our surrounding community to thrive, it requires a group of people who are willing to give in order to thrive. It doesn't just happen on its own. And I know it's challenging for many of us who give in this, in this busy city that we live in. We're often traveling for work. We're traveling for family. Or we're traveling around the city just to get our kids from one place to another for their programs. But here's my invitation for you to consider. You know, many of us might work a 40-hour-a-week job. But I ask you maybe to consider what would it look like to give 10% of your time towards something that you get no immediate benefit out of. Volunteering. It, doesn't, it, has, it could be the church. It could be some organization or another ministry. But to give four hours a week, what would that look like? Imagine what could be accomplished if everyone in this room gave four hours a week some to the church or something outside, that where we could help others thrive, not just look at ourselves to survive. Maybe you don't work a full-time job and you're, you're a full-time stay-at-home parent, and that is an amazing endeavor. And that's a way of giving as well. But maybe it's something that you can look at outside of that as well. We may feel like the soldiers or the sailors. We're just trying to do what we can to survive. But how do we give out of a place like Paul? How do we not give out of a place of obligation and of fear? A fear of being hurt or being disappointed or taken advantage of. Ultimately, how do we give in a way that helps us thrive and also helps others thrive around us? You know, when we look at Paul's response, his response is characterized by a kind of certainty. He's not helping because he's afraid of disappointment. He's assured. Despite being a prisoner, he has no authority. 
His ability ability to give and to thrive comes from something outside of himself or actually someone outside of himself. It comes through his confidence in the God that he's come to know. Through a vision that he receives, Paul is assured of this deliverance as he knows he must appear before Caesar in Rome. And he stands on that promise of God's call. In verse 24, it says, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Now, some of you might get distracted by whether this kind of vision is believable, but that's missing the point of this vision. Paul's encouragement to the others on the ship is to give up control and stay together. And that's grounded in something that he has already experienced. He has an unshakable faith in God and the God who has called him and preserved him thus far. His giving comes from a deep place of certainty in what God has already given to him. There's a phrase in there, God has graciously given. In the Greek, it suggests this granting in response to prayer for safekeeping of all. The implication of this phrase is that Paul has already been asking for deliverance on behalf of the whole ship's company, and he's acting on it as if it has already happened. It's on the basis of God's promise of God's, for, God's, uh, for Paul's safe arrival in Rome that he is able to pray the same for his shipmates. This promise of deliverance he believed for himself is something that can be shared with those around him, even though they are not yet believers of God as he is. In verse 34 and 35, this is made more explicit when he gives thanks to God in prayer for the meal they are about to have and and that they're sharing before they abandon the ship to make a break for land. After giving them the assurance that all will survive, he gives thanks to God. And though this sounds like the Lord's Supper, that's not what's going on here because Paul and likely his, and his companions are probably the only Christians on the ship at this point. It's at this darkest moment, metaphorically, but also in reality for them. It's just before dawn. The ship is dead. The lifeboat has been cut. Their food has run out. It's at this lowest and darkest point in the scene for those on the ship, that Paul gives not only advice and encouragement, but he also gives the light of God's saving promise. This light is only seen by those with eyes of faith, though. Paul's giving helps the shipmates and fellow uh, prisoners to survive this, this particular dilemma they're in. But his giving also gives them a chance to sit... Uh, survive a future and an eternal dilemma. Paul is able to give generously and without reserve because he has come to know God's faithfulness and God's promise in the past. Paul's giving is certain because he is certain of the character of the one who has already given to him. You know, as WCF looks ahead to how we can give to this particular gathered community, and how we can give to the community surrounding this gathered place. Maybe it's to the neighbors that we live by, or to the neighbors that we work with. We're looking for opportunities to give that help others thrive. And there's no shortage of opportunities 
just in this past year, you know, I've been able to connect with some amazing ministries that do great work in the city, like feeding the poor. And we're going to gather after the service, if you can stay behind, to serve with soup and stew and cut and make ingredients to serve our unhoused neighbors in the city. There's opportunities to serve with teenage moms who are trying to manage going to school and getting an education while raising an infant. There's opportunities to organize to fight uncompassionate development in the city. There's opportunities to serve those immigrants who are in need of support. There's opportunities to help those requiring legal aid. There's opportunities to respond to communities who are feeling the brunt of gun violence. And I was just at this week uh, at a criminal justice reform uh, cohort learning about how policing can often be racialized, and so how can we step into that? In this text, we are reminded that we don't have to look at the circumstances or what has happened in the past. We're invited to trust in God's call for us to shine the light of God's good news and to step forward into it. We look for opportunities to give. We acknowledge those challenges to give in our own lives, in our Uh, in our fears, but we can give from a place of deep certainty because of what God has first given to us in Christ. In Christ, we have a certain and secure future. In Christ, we have the comfort of his presence. In Christ, we have the forgiveness of our sin, past, present, and future, and the brokenness that we find constantly rearing its ugly head in our lives. In Christ, we find the assurance of being loved by the living and eternal God. And so we can give of ourselves to our, so our community might thrive. Because in its thriving, we find that we come alive as well. You see, giving is not just good brain science. It's what we're wired for as God's image bearers. So may we do so and bear God's image faithfully and fully with God's help and for his glory. Amen.